The Recipes for Life podcast is a conversation about my favorite ingredients for a healthy human experience. We take an informed look at topics that include nutritional and emotional well-being, as well as expanded consciousness. If you would like to become a qualified health coach, then the Institute for Integrative Nutrition, or IIN for short, can help you achieve your goals. I completed their health coaching course many years ago, which has been one of the catalysts for my own journey into what I now love to do, which is to help people achieve greater health through the sharing of information through my books, seminars, podcasts, TV shows and films. I recommend IIN for anyone wishing to pursue a career in the health coaching and wellness space. IIN is a one-year course, so that if you're a full-time worker, busy parent, or wherever you are in your life, it is flexible enough so you'll be able to complete all the required curriculum. Please see the link included in the podcast show notes or my website to access the free sample class and first module of their program. This will give you a great taste of the format as well as the structure, and you can also utilize my special discount that I can offer you if you decide to sign up. Make sure you tell the admissions team that you're part of the Pete Evans Tuition Savings to claim your very substantial discount. Please visit integrativenutrition.com or email admissions at integrativenutrition.com. Dr. Rachel Wyndham is a doctor, blogger, writer, philosopher, animal lover and seasoned snow bunny. Dr. Rachel currently lives between the Gold Coast and Wanaka, New Zealand, with her three beautiful daughters. Her family are the driving inspiration behind all her noble endeavours as a passionate, integrative medical professional who acts with integrity. She is also a naturopath and also a general practitioner. To find out more about Dr. Rachel, or Dr. Rach, visit drrachelwindham.com. That is D-R-R-A-C-H-E-L-W-Y. N D H A M dot com. Dr. Rachel, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. And I've been looking forward to this podcast for so long. Now, let's talk about your history because you are not only a, uh, a medical doctor, but you're also a naturopath, which, uh, gives you a, a foot in, in both worlds. And, and I think this is, is exactly where medicine is at the moment. Can you tell us a little bit about how you became both of these and, yeah. and your history, please? Sure, sure. Hi, Pete. It's really great to be here. It's an interesting time, definitely. And my journey, yeah, hasn't been the usual. So when I first studied naturopathy in the you know, 90s, I grew up in a, a household that was very influenced by natural medicine. My, so my aunt was a naturopath in the 70s. So you can imagine then that was very fringe and taboo. Um, so I just remember taking herbal tonics and, you know, eating well. My mum was mostly vegetarian. And so when I decided to study nutritional medicine and naturopathy, I just assumed that this was kind of general knowledge and how people address their health. They kind of looked to what made us up and what we consumed made a difference to our physiology. And so I went through that training. I did a three-year naturopathy diploma and then I did a biomedical science degree and I opened a clinic and I had the fortune of just, you know, the way the universe works and happenstance, I 
joined a clinic with a, a now colleague friend of mine who has one of the lovely biggest integrative medicine clinics now here in Queensland, and she'd just finished her GP training. So I was doing complementary medicine. She was doing general practice, very interested in everything that I had to offer, and I felt very limited with what I had to offer because I came across all this resistance. Um, lots of people very interested but not quite trusting, thinking it was you know, a little bit way out there and, you know, does diet really affect your health and do herbal medicines really work? Um, so I'd find that they, I didn't have the trust. I didn't have the opportunity to refer to specialists. I didn't have the chance to request pathology. And, and I was really driven to have both sides of the picture. I thought if there is distrust or some kind of something that I'm missing, that medical degree that these practicing doctors know that I don't, then you know, that's what I should seek. So fast forward then a medical degree and another four or five years of uni plus internship residency, full circle back into clinic. And I'm so glad that I did that and just had the opportunity to learn being in that environment. It just, it excites me. And, and so it wasn't a chore. I also did that with little ones, with hmm. babies and dragging them to uni and <laughs> intern years with a new baby. And so we just all muddled along together and, and did that. So I think early in the 90s when I was studying, I do remember they were just finishing the human genome project. So these were the early days. We were just finding out about genes and what we call SNPs or defects of genes so if we think about how much we've learned just in the time that I've qualified and been practicing, it's exponential. So these, um, like the topic we're going to talk about today, pyrroles or pyroluria is so very new and we're only just learning. So there's so much confusion and controversy and I hope that we can clear some of that up today. But in answer to your question, so my feet in one foot in both camps, um, I now really blur the lines between what is naturopathic medicine and what is general practice. So some of the really old texts in the 20s and 30s, which are general medicine prior to antibiotic days and big pharma days, were about all our basics, you know, daily exercise and eating well and sits baths and hydrotherapy. And, and like it's beautiful to read back on that and think, wow, these are doctors. This is just how they work. I don't know where we split to be naturopathic and orthodox. Um, so I think that it's important that we remember that and don't get too caught up on someone's practicing this way and someone's practicing the other and just bring it all back together somehow sensibly. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And we wanted to talk about pyroles or pyroluria as you seem to be, uh, you've had personal experience with this and uh, myself, my, my own daughter who's uh, just turning 13 has just been um, diagnosed with having pyrroles as well. So this is a, a perfect timing and as you normally do, you go onto the net and look for information and there's, a, there's so much out there and one thing that kept popping up for me was your name when I kept Googling pyroluria and people that uh, had, had worked with it. So I was like, Oh, I wonder if I could get Dr. Rachel onto the podcast and have a chat about this because I had ne never really heard about it before. And obviously we now have a, a situation where we have a member of our family that we care for very deeply that now, what do we do now once we know the information? And could you share exactly what pyroles is or pyroluria is as it's defined? 
these days and your experience with it, please, Rachel. Sure. Yeah. So pyrrole or pyroluria, so pyrrole is a compound. So it's a hydroxyhemopyrrolin ring. So it's a, a five-sided chemical that is produced. It's a part of the heme molecule. And in the 1950s, originally, when this first, the science of this first came around, there was some research done by Dr. Hoffer, and they found something called Mo factor in urine. And it was linked with a group of um, schizophrenics that they were studying. So I think this is the very early days where they were looking at biochemistry of mental health. So a lot of the groups of patients that they could look at and study were often inmates or they were mentally ill in institutions. So these were extremes and bipolar, schizophrenia. So over the years, that became an area of interest. And in the 70s, Dr. Carl Pfeiffer. So there was a Pfeiffer Institute and there was, you know, a big organization and some research by him, which kind of fell to the wayside. I don't know that it had the funding or the clinical trials. So they were looking more at refining which compound in the urine was responsible for the link possibly with some of the changes to mental health. So now we have Dr. William Walsh. So there's an organization that train practitioners, doctors, and quite a few psychiatrists in Australia have gone through this program as well called Biobalance. Um, so he's an American chemist who comes out and does the training. He's got a book called Nutrient Power. So a lot of what we then use as the base to our practice comes from Dr. Walsh's um, training. Mm -hmm. So I did the training in that a few years ago and, and quite similar to you, I had a lot of people mentioning it, patients in clinic. Um, I understood the, the basic chemistry and I understood the implications and what that could possibly mean. And when it comes to genetics, I still have my early days hat on as to, you know, if we do see these gene variations and then look at the big complex biochemical pathways, you know, is this the same in everyone? Is, does this mean you just have a weakness or a tendency not to be able to, you know, tolerate a certain amount of either functional stress or nutritional or viral stress? Um, so then as in your example, my daughter had some challenges in her teens and it's funny that the more and more patients I, I now see, it's mums bringing their kids when they're going through a big growth spurt or change or they're starting school. So, and the seven year cycles are really interesting in there. So, you know, when kiddies start in the age seven and they've started school and that's a massive stress and impact on their body. And then coming to 13, 14, when they're going through puberty and there's a lot of hormone stresses, you know, and then when they're leaving school and going to university and getting to that, you know, 2021, 20, and all through our life, like we have periods where we have big stressors on us. So we go through pregnancy, have a lot of women who, who say to me, oh, just nothing has been right since I was pregnant or since I had this baby, you know, right through to getting married, moving house, changing jobs. So when I'm thinking about the actual patient that may have this condition, pyrroles, um, I think of someone who is very sensitive and very intolerant to stress. So they kind of, you know, if you think of it in a picture of somebody, they, they need their time out. They need to recuperate. They can't overdo things. If they don't have those margins around, they get very intolerant. They get 
you know, run down quickly or they get a little snappy or a little <laughs> tired and that comes out really in their mood and behaviour. And I think that everyone is such an individual that we've got to take into account all of the aspects of life and this one particular condition can just be, you know, one of those areas of weakness that we can watch, we can correct and we can give someone just that little bit extra margin that they don't end up with everything to a point where you get that perfect storm and crisis and you become really unwell or just unable to manage through your life normally. So what are you saying here when it comes to, I guess, a diagnosis then? So it's a urine test first and foremost? It is. Yeah. So people have a look and as you did, and I'm surprised that I came up in a lot of, because <laughs> it's not something that I've really focused and, and been out there speaking about, but I do get a lot of people who've got confused and tried lots of treatment and are really in a bad way. And I think I've just probably chatted to a few different practitioners and got some good results that, yeah, they're saying, go and see me. She's the expert, but I aren't, I'm not. <laughs> um, but what it means is that you do a urine test and it comes up with a level of these pyrrole compounds in your urine. And what the pyrrole compounds do is they're a five ring structure under stressful conditions, which is something called epigenetics. So you have a gene and then a certain time that gene can be triggered or turned on, and that's environmental so stressors, diet, or as we talked about, all of those different times through your life. Then this conformational change of this pyrrole molecule binds to two nutrients, which are really critical. Um, often pyrrole, they talk about three different nutrients, but the two that I focus on are vitamin B6 and zinc. Mm -hmm. And so the process of this pyrrole compound being excreted through the urine in really large quantities is that it depletes your levels of zinc and vitamin B6. So they will just pour out. And we find that it's a, it's a complex mix of symptoms in someone that's had this condition maybe lifelong or, you know, develops slowly over the years. They've got unwell and you find that they've just been depleting their B6 and zinc consistently. And a lot of the symptoms you see are actually either B6 deficiency symptoms or zinc deficiency. And if you go Googling pyrrole, you'll see huge, big, long lists, you know, of every possible condition you can imagine. And they blame pyrrole or the condition pyroluria for that. I think they're stretching it a little far because we have to take into account all the hormone alterations, digestive alterations. So pyrroles themselves, I think you have a genetic tendency. You inherit this gene SNP or defect. Um, you have the tendency to make this molecule transform under stressful conditions and then it binds B6 and zinc and it pours it out through your urine. And so over time, it just depends on your makeup, your environment, your diet. You get to a point where you've kind of hit crisis where these symptoms are very significant and you go hunting for an answer. And I think that's where we find people and they can tick off these lists and say, oh, my goodness, I'm so sensitive to noise and sensitive to sound, you know, that person that can't stand someone clunking their cutlery and, mm -hmm. and will just snap <laughs> or have to leave the room. Um, for people that have no dream recall, like I remember seeing a little boy around the age of 10 who spoke about, you know, woke in the night, really traumatized, saying, Mum, I have movies playing in my bedroom. Like he just couldn't understand the concept of dreams and what that meant. Um, so, you know, this is being treated and having some of those nutrient levels repaired and the change in his 
brain biochemistry was significant. So I think, yeah, it's um, the condition is tested in the urine. You send a urine sample off. There's quite a few different labs that do that. Um, I think the cost varies. I really think you have to do it under controlled conditions. So there's a few websites that advertise, you know, send me so much money and I'll send you a test kit. The ones that we do specifically, and we're just a collection point, I don't do any, you know, as part of our clinic or as a business, it's just purely offering a service so people can have the best test result. And it has to be um, protected from light. So the urine is covered in aluminium foil to take the light away. It has to be snapped, frozen, and then transported under that condition. So, you know, in that frozen state, um, or else the result can be, you know, mis leading. Sure. Um, and then once you get that result, then you don't actually treat the pyro. You're not looking, a lot of people say, oh, when do I retest it? Am I trying to get my levels down? Um, so it, it's really good to understand that this is going to happen to you right throughout your life. So any sort of times of stress, which we try to avoid as best we can, but you know, we're not immune to the way life goes along for us, that there'll be times when you have to be extra careful and vigilant and have extra amounts of these nutrients to protect because you're going to have to have, you know, larger amounts of these pyrrole substances eliminated through the urine. So I don't ever test again. Once you get a decent result from a reputable testing facility, then we just know that that's your tendency. So we'd probably go from there and just have a look at the nutrient levels and just test a couple that we can measure some we're not so good at measuring yet and then just make a plan there to make sure we don't have ongoing deficiencies so when what i understand then the b6 and zinc is coming out of the urine or coming out of the body it's being excreted so what is the i guess the effect of that on the body and on and on the mind once you have a deficiency in, in those um, vitamins and nutrients so if you have a look, I mean, you could just Google the, if uh, listeners are interested, zinc, zinc deficiency. So there's so many conditions there. And I think it's a degree of how long and how deficient you are. Um, so zinc is all about the immune system. It's all about healing. It's about, you know, cellular function. So the immune system, things like mouth ulcers, hair, skin and nails, um, that's what zinc's very well known for. Um, it plays a role in so many enzyme activities in our cells, so also our immune function. Then it's big thing that I see, especially with women or in those critical hormone times of our life, is that if you ever look at the mineral wheel, again, you could just Google that and look at the complex interaction of, of all our trace minerals, you'll see that every single mineral increases or decreases another and they work synergistically and it's such a complex process but zinc and copper are intricately linked and so the lower the zinc the higher your copper becomes and I think a lot of the symptoms that I identify with pyrroles that have gone on for some time are about the copper excess mm -hmm. as much as it is the zinc deficiency um, so we can measure both zinc and copper um, in the blood and simple, you know, the basic labs can do that. They're not a Medicare subsidized test, so they're a private test. Um, so any naturopath or doctor can do them. You just pay privately and, and then Medicare are happy with that. Um, but we look at two things with copper. We look at the free copper, which is a combination of the standard serum copper. And then we look at the cellular plasm, which is the bound copper to protein. 
So most of our minerals circulate throughout our body and when they're in our plasma and our blood, they need to be bound to a protein so that they're stable and um, then they're distributed into the tissue wherever they need to be. So because we don't really go sampling tissue other than hair, which is a little, you know, unreliable or sometimes saliva for hormones, we combine the copper, free copper and the bound copper to protein and we look at the percentage of free copper that you have so it's a little bit of an algorithm um, but the more free floating copper there's a lot of symptoms related to that and I think that they're more significant with the active anxiety mood swings and the, the real difficulties people find with general coping you know the mental health kind of side of what can happen from pyroluria as well as just playing havoc with hormones it's awful for estrogen and our poor pre- pubescent or <laughs> uh, adolescence, which we both share. I've got hmm. three daughters. I've got two just gone through, one more to come. But, yeah, that age of 13, 14, 15 is really challenging for them. And what other nutrient we talk? Oh, zinc. So we just measure a plasma zinc and we just look at the range. Most labs have a basic range that seems what okay, what they consider okay for the Australian population. It's a huge range. I think that anyone in the lower part of that range is deficient and we regularly see them under. Um, so I sort of have a target to achieve with zinc. And then we just start a basic supplement regime of zinc and B6. That's it? <laughs> you do the supplements and then <laughs> that's it. What else do you recommend then is if you've got a, a parent coming in and their child has tested positive for having the pyrols, you do a zinc and B6 supplementation. Is there anything else that you would recommend as far as lifestyle, diet, exercise, or all of the above? Yeah, yeah. I think that's my key message if I'm talking to anyone with, with pyroluria is that, you know, this is a, a really big topic in Australia. It's interesting that if you look at, you know, people looking for answers, it's not so big in the States or in Europe. So for some reason we've really grasped onto this condition and, you know, a lot of patients I get who either want Skype consult or they travel to see me and they've found this and they're really confused and they start lots of supplements. So it's very common for a lot of the these trained physicians and especially you know, GPs who are doing some integrative medicine, and I love that they are, it's it's amazing and we need so many more, um, but they don't have that nutritional biochemistry or that the basic understanding of even the way foods interact. And so they'll just follow the protocols, which are fine, but they're very expensive. There's a morning and nighttime formula often. They separate. They have four, five, six, even, you know, more different nutrients in each. Um, and Many times patients say, I feel so bad. I feel worse. I feel terrible. I can't do this. And, you know, they're besides themselves. And so I keep it really, really simple. And I also try to educate people on the fact that, look, we don't know the full extent of what some of these genes, SNPs and defects really mean. So most patients that see me will do the simple 23andMe gene testing. Um, I only do that one because it's $99. You send it to the States, you get a data file, which is your complete mapped genome, which is incredible. I mean, we were talking tens of thousands of dollars only 10, 20 years ago. 
And you can then put that through data analysis and have a look at all these different SNPs that you have. So what a SNP is is just a, a change to that particular gene that you got from your mum and your dad and you should have two of. Sometimes you only get one and one's a little bit defected. Sometimes you get two defected genes and they can influence so many biochemical pathways. So I think there's about 27 different alterations simply in the heme molecule related to pyrrole that we could possibly find out about. Um, and this is only just one that we're focusing on at the moment. So there's other areas like MTHFR and methylation. That's a really big popular topic. COMPT and different liver detoxification enzyme pathways that can be defected. So what I try to say with pyroluria is, look, this is really interesting. It can make a big difference. And I have seen that, especially with kids, but it really is just one little area of your complete whole life. So we don't, we need to look at gut health. We need to look at hormone balance. And as you said, what else do you do for this condition? Then what else do you do for a whole person? Um, we need to sleep those, you know, correct amount of hours and have enough hydration and eat a whole diet. And it needs to be sugar-free. And, you know, if we're full paleo into that grain-free or anything that's, you know, not triggering the body, causing inflammation, causing stress. And all of those stressors, whether it's emotional, environmental, dietary, are pushing and triggering this pyrrole just to activate and, and make it even more difficult for you to feel balanced and well and, you know, clear and calm. So my – I'm really always staying in both camps and that means to – understand that we don't have clinical trials about this. If you have a look at the naysayers when you Google this, you know, they say, show me the clinical trials. We don't have the data. Why is there no data? I don't know the answer to that. I think it's so complex and um, it'd be great to see some. I've seen personally the changes and you'll see the very passionate um, voices online about pyrrole, especially mothers when they see a significant difference in their child, that I can't doubt that there's a really big factor and presence in well-being by correcting these pyrrole. But in saying that, I also stick with the do no harm first. Um, harm can be putting a lot of pressure on someone with lots of samples, financial, um, they're very costly. And then when you add all of these other things in, you can make someone feel really unwell. So many people think that simple nutrients and supplements are natural and safe no, but if you give folate to someone with MTHFR defects, they'll feel awful. If, if you take zinc first thing in the morning, you want to throw up, you'll think you're pregnant and have morning sickness. So <laughs> that's not a good idea. If you take B6 at night, it will keep you up all night. So just knowing the little things about the way the nutrients work, and I just pair it way back and keep it so simple and just do a very small dose of one each and make sure someone's okay and not experiencing symptoms and side effects from a treatment that should be making them feel better. And of course, like complete health is, as you know, and what you educate on is how to move someone from bad choices to right choices and get their whole life into a, a state where they do have a lot more margins and they can take the stresses off and feel well. So I just want to touch on that then because, I mean, that's news to me, the B6 and the zinc. So probably middle of the day or mid-morning uh, to supplement so that there's not the effects of feeling nauseous from the zinc in the morning or the B6 
of an evening that keeps you up all night? Yeah, so in hunting around for different ways to do, you know, simple supplementation, can I mention product names? Is that mm-hmm. I mean, we probably don't have to, but these are just a couple that I found. So there was a formulation by a pediatrician, I believe, specialist in Sydney, and it's it just worked out to be a perfect starting point for me. And it's a one capsule which contains a combination of 35 milligrams of zinc mm-hmm. and 15 of P5P and 60 of just the pyridoxine, the B6. And it has a little bit, 20 milligrams of magnesium. And it's oh maybe 40 or $50. It lasts you three months. So it's just something that everyone can do and can afford. And if because they're combined, you do have to take it slowly and take it, as you said, mid-morning. So if you have it mid to later morning with something to eat, often you can avoid the side effects that zinc gives you, that awful nausea. Yep. And then if that's tolerated, if it still gives you a bit of nausea and symptoms, I'll do just one every second day until that gets tolerated. And often it only takes a few days for someone's system to you know, settle down and not have those sort of side effects anymore. And that's earlier enough in the day that the B6 isn't a problem. So this, this brand is called Spectrum Pseudocalls, but if you want to have a look at my website or email, we can, I can show you some more specifics. But you can get those individual nutrients just in like a Blackmore's brand. You can get the simple zinc to take at night or the B6 to take in the morning if you do want to separate them out. But I find people are busy and even just getting one supplement in a day is probably enough, especially with someone stressed, sensitive, not coping anyway. And most patients come back saying, oh, I actually, within two or three days, I do feel the effects of B6. I feel like some clouds have lifted. I don't have that fogginess, that, you know, thinking behind your eyes, feeling there's some clarity. And that's enough to make people feel motivated, you know, and secure and feel safe enough to just keep continuing down that process. And everyone's different. So if you think it's really deficient and you have really strong pyrrole, you know, the basic recommended dose a day of zinc is maybe 2 to 8 to 10 milligrams. That will go up to 60, 80, even more for some people because we just can't see those levels increase. But we do it so, so slowly because if we do increase the zinc really quickly, then the copper is just released free yeah. and it's awful. You know, someone feels really sick with that. So, yeah, just one of that, and I don't think there's any harm in doing those. Those nutrients, the bees are water-soluble, they're eliminated in the urine, um, and we're not overloading on zinc, which can be a problem. Um, yeah, so simple. And what about evening primrose oil or the black currant oil that I've uh, read about too? Is that necessary or is that just an add-on? Yeah, no, actually it is. It's not a necessary, so mm. there is one point I always put at the bottom of this little, I draw this picture and tell this story over and over every day about the pyrrole. <laughs> Here's the V6, there's the zinc, don't take fish oils. So it's the way apparently, and I, I haven't yet got to where the metabolic pathways are that someone might be able to ring, you know, email or send me a little link if you're listening to this and you're a biochemist. But people with this pyrrole, don't have the ability to metabolize the ratio EPA, DHA in the fish oils as well. So it's recommended, and this is the biobalance recommendation, that evening primrose oil, which, you know, a plant-based oil is a better ratio, so hence the black currant. I think anyone, especially young women menstruating or through that 
difficult times of pregnancy, mm. it's important that they do have a good fat oil content. And I mean, that's where you come in with diet as well and trying to get the less saturated fats and some good anti-inflammatory fats in. So evening primrose oil is always a given. I think just have it anyway. <laughs> but yeah, with pyrols, it's important to have that rather than fish. Okay. Well, that's new to me. So thank you for that. So um, I want to go back to, I guess, the stress, the stress levels that can happen for people. And I guess, I mean, we live in a society at the moment where everyone is pushed to <laughs> to succeed, I guess. My daughter goes to school. She's very active. She pushes herself. It's, it's part of her nature. So some recommendation for her, because obviously she'll be listening to this and I don't want to push her anyway, because, you know, with children, you want them to, to create their own reality and, and understand their own bodies and, and be their own unique, beautiful selves and come to their own realizations. But, uh, if I came in with my daughter, what would be the words that you would uh, say to her? to give her the support that she needs and to understand that this isn't, I guess, something to, that there's something not wrong with her per se, but mm. it's uh, something that uh, she needs to take into consideration. Yeah, it's a really great question and it's such a precious time in those years well, for children, all of our children that we try to nurture. And, you know, my, I started in health retreats and, have done the Vipassana, you know, silent meditation retreats and yoga every day or I can't survive that. So, you know, I try to teach my girls as well that we can be, you know, we're born a certain nature. You know, I've got three and they're so different genetically. They look different. They have different personalities and needs and weaknesses. But with every strength they have, it it has a flip side and it has a weakness. So, you know, a super creative soul that can tap in and has that intuition and they're going to absorb everything. So they're going to be very, they're going to need a lot of space and time and, and recuperation compared to somebody who is very analytical, uh, physical, and can just get out there and deal with the world in that material way. So I think letting people understand that, there are so many variations that we're all completely unique and to be that self-awareness to realize that we're perfectly made absolutely and that we're enough we've just got to go on this whole long lifelong journey of self-discovery to find out where our strengths are and where our weaknesses are and if we push too far one way we're going to have repercussions like life is this beautiful rhythm and we sleep and then we wake you know we eat and we fast we also need to regenerate and rest and then go back out there in our season of summer and, you know, go and create and compete. And so, yeah, it, that's a big lesson and it's hard to teach our children because we're learning it as well as we go through our lives. But to understand that this pyrrole is, is an amazing opportunity to learn a bit more about yourself and to know that this is the way you need to allow more margins in your life and more rest and recuperation and that the effects of stress, you, you aren't a robot. They're going to have repercussions and you've got to be able to listen to your body. And I guess you don't compare yourself to anybody else as well. Yeah, that's exactly right. If I wanted to be a triathlete, no, I'd be very disappointed. At <laughs> but, you know, I know I can push myself in other areas. So it's that comparison that we have nowadays and thinking that, We've got to be everything and 
you know, watching what everyone else is doing and thinking that's what I want to be. But if it's not your magic and it, it doesn't flow for you, then, you know, why put yourself through that? So it is, it's a challenging thing, but stress, you know, there's a book that I have, and I think it's 1927 and it's a medical journal or it's a, like a text. The word stress is not in that time. So it's something that we've just come up with and we use so loosely. And I think there's stress in our you know, physiology and our thinking and our environment. And that's just life. I think we should ditch the word altogether and just try and find a way to live in a life that allows our natural flow and rhythms um, and taking time out. I think kids at that age need to, they need discipline. They need to be able to attend activities and attend school and go and do the things they commit to doing, but they also need to be able to verbalise when certain things they're feeling are not feeling right for them and have those margins and space and people around to support them and say, yes, it's time you need to have a rest or make a change or, you know, think about why you're doing this. Mm. So just to recap, I mean, you've given us so much information about this and thank you so much. So supplementation, looking at lifestyle, looking at diet, looking at stress, as you call it, life. Life, uh, yeah. <laughs> sleeping, obviously, not comparing yourself to others and finding out what, what your own passions are and what your own limitations are or strengths and weaknesses, as, as you mentioned. And you also mentioned the genome testing that you do at your clinic. And can you just run that? little part for us again, because I guess that's the next piece of the puzzle to if, if people want to find out more about themselves. Is that correct? Yeah. I, it's going to be exciting. Like I think if you and I had a conversation in another 20 years, if we're still around doing this, <laughs> there would be, um, you know, we'd have such great knowledge and we could probably just plug in our genes and have a complete formulation of, you know, the extra nutrient supplement that just we need individually, which would be beautiful, um, and what medications we can and can't have and what conditions that we're at risk of that we're going to develop. Like we're talking homocysteine and cardiac conditions and even ageing. I mean, that that all comes into it. How do we reduce that ageing? So what are you – there's lots of different companies. There's Australian companies as well that will do individual gene testing um, so most naturopaths can send off, they'll test for the MTHFR genes or comp genes or different um, combinations of these and you get complex reports back. Um, most patients say, I've got all this, what does it mean? I have no idea. And I, often, honestly, I look and say, oh, I didn't even know if this means you have one or two. Like it's not very clear on how they report. And I'm sure there are some great practitioners who really work specifically with those and it's great but what I use is just an American company it's called 23andMe um, you get online you just google 23andMe I think it's around $90 it's a saliva test you send off takes a week or two and then they've been the the forerunners in in this gene data collection so they'll be looking in, at the future research will come from there and you can agree to have your data allowed for use, not named and identified, but just to map trends of different conditions. So you do a big questionnaire and it starts to sort of collect mm. data on, wow, this gene particularly when they have that many million people in their database is linked to this and this is where the future will be. But for an individual, you'll get this data set back and then you can 
put it through something called Gene Genie. The data is just a raw data file. It's mm-hmm. just thousands of lines of these gene numbers. So it will make no sense really to everyone. Mm-hmm. And then you put it through something called Gene Genie and it spits out a colored little code of the green, orange, and red gene SNPs of the major ones that we know anything about. Um, so you'll get green saying you've got two of the normal ones, orange saying you've got one normal one, one defected one, and then a red saying you've got two defected ones. And at the moment what that means to me, if we quickly touch on NTHFR, which is just a um, folate metabolism process, is it's like your factory. So if you had a shoe factory and, you know, it was as big as a, a supermarket and you needed to make 100 shoes a week, then no problem. If your factory was 30% less, but it still had the capacity to make 1,000 shoes a week, but you only needed 100, then mm-hmm. you're going to go through your life fine. Your factory is not going to have any problem. Um, if it was two gene defects, so 70% reduced, you're getting quite tight now with what you can produce, maybe 150 shoes a week and you're making 100, so not a great deal of margin. So something happens like a pregnancy and suddenly you need a lot more, that's where some problems start to happen. So I think it's just knowing that there's a tendency there for you to have a weakness in an area when things happen, just keep that in mind and be able to, you know, discuss that with someone that has a bit of an understanding about it. So folate MTHFR is a whole nother hour story. <laughs> um, but yeah, I'm talking with some of the obstetrician and gynies now locally and we're all still, really, do you think, do you know, you know, what about? And we we make changes as we go and we, we see results and it's new, it's great, but it's still uncertain. And medicine is, the uncertainty is one of the things you have to learn to be a good practitioner. And it'd be nice to just be able to tell everyone the basic facts, but we don't know them yet. Mm. I, I, wanna, I just got two more questions for you, but you mentioned it before about paleo and it's, I want to take this opportunity, if you don't mind, to have a naturopath and also a GP or a doc, medical doctor on here. And your quick summation on why paleo seems to be something that a lot of naturopaths and a lot of integrative doctors these days and GPs are starting to promote as as a lifestyle choice. Why is it sort of the default that seems to help a lot of people? Hmm. It's, I think with any of the diets and I've gone through just testing myself over the years. So naturally I was a vegetarian just by the way I felt. It was more a yogic and a philosophy and then I fell pregnant in my 20s with my eldest daughter and suddenly just had to have lamb and roast and meat and realizing over time I mean if you're in tune with that then you can say there's something to this is is this just me thinking and having to be very set in my ways and not really being flexible and making changes over my life which we've got to change how we eat over our life as well so I needed meat and I was iron deficient and so I've watched that now throughout my life and I know I'm better on a paleo-based. Lots of gut issues, any grains are a problem. You know, do we look at the blood type diet and think, okay, so maybe you're an O and that suits you, that type of eating, but then generally the majority of the population are O and that suits them generally. So I think that any diet where you're taking out sugar, absolutely. So I've done some work with Sarah 
it's, you know, I quit sugar program and you're taking out refined foods. So anything that's processed and most of that are your breads and grains. And if we come back to a protein source and vegetables and we don't have a fructose turn off, you know, set point. So we just consume sugar and fruits are one of those as well. So if we have a limited amount of fruit, Yep. As much fruit of uh, uh, veggies as you need. I don't get too caught up in which veggies and then meat. So, yeah, the paleo seems to just, if anyone can do it 100%, you could probably get down in nitty-gritty and start arguing with different practitioners about types of fat and quantity of fat. But, you know, you would know as well with your community how many people can do that 100%. Not really. Like they they can do their best and they do mostly and, and that's probably enough. And sometimes those little what we call, you know, mistakes they make or mm. things they pull in that they probably shouldn't are not a bad thing for the majority of people. So I would break down diet and look at, you know, is there a gut issue? Is it a FODMAPS problem? Um, is there a dairy milk protein allergy? And there's, you know, that's cleared up if you're on paleo anyway. And then is there a grain gluten kind of autoimmune allergy problem and that's cleared up with paleo anyway so it it sort of ticks all those boxes in a way it's sort of a a default way of uh letting the body sort of get into a state of of healing is that would would that be the right term or just giving the body what it needs nutrient wise Mm. because i'm I'm always looking for the right words for this from and you're the perfect example to have on here as a doctor and also as a holistic practitioner what is the right wording for someone for them to, I guess, investigate eating a paleo approach? Mm. So when people are really unwell, I always talk to them about, you know, what is it in nature that we usually do? So if someone's sick, they get a broth or a soup or something that's simple, often pre-cooked and pre-digested, that's not going to put a lot of strain on the digestive system, on the energy of the body to break down and assimilate, direct that energy into the nervous system and the immune system in the way that they need to, you know, those margins have been stretched and they need to replenish some of that, those other systems. Um, so when I say think about what you feed a baby when they're first starting to have solids, so one simple food, individual foods, just a vegetable, you know, pureed and mashed so it's already pre-digested, and then a protein, an individual protein. And if we go back and start with that when someone's unwell, then they just seem to have that nourishment and that amount of energy and slowly you can open it back up. But, you know, some of the really complex foods that people have now for health, like, they mix up all these really complex grains and lots of nutrients and throw in a smoothie with kale and spinach and avocado and maca and mesquite. And I think, oh, my goodness, like I have no idea what the Paul's small intestine is trying to do with all of that. So that's trying to put super fuel in a Ferrari when your poor old Volkswagen mm-hmm. hasn't had an oil change and it's barely putting along. So, you know, start so simple. And I think that's where paleo just gives you that simple structure i really like that (laughs) i really like that i I like the simplistic nature and it's interesting because i've been thinking about it more and more how simple should we make our meals should it be protein and one type of vegetable per meal should it be a couple of types of vegetables should it be a plate of rainbow colored 
ingredients on there. And, and I go back and forth and, and it's interesting because hearing you talk about that is actually bring it back to its, its simple base. But the chef and me, I love to use spices and lots of different herbs and, yeah. and th- things out of the garden when they're growing. So I guess it's experimentation, but I, from what you're saying, the simpler the better probably for the, for the body to digest. And there's no one rule, is there? So those seasons of life. So if it is winter and it's cold and, you know, that, that's a whole different process that you want to to each and then if you're unwell that's going to be a different story again but if you know if you're quite well and balanced and you're active and you've got your heat and cool fairly controlled and I mean you can then go and eat a rainbow and have beautiful different texture and um, enjoy that what you know what a chef can create I'm not that clever I'm very simple in my (laughs) cooking Um, you know one of the things that you see is people who have either had a medical condition where they lose their sense of smell or they put on very strict FODMAPs where they can't have garlic and onion and all of these gorgeous herbs and flavours, it does affect their mental health. So there's a high rate of depression with someone who has no smell, which affects their taste. So I think that there's times for that very simple, bland, um, and you look at zinc deficiency, your taste is reduced. You don't have that ability. And, you know, when parents come in with kids and they say they just will not eat anything, they, mm. they will eat white bread or that's all. And, you know, I think, well, what's the, that body telling that poor kid? You know, how upset is their gut that there's nothing else that they can really feel okay with? They're going to be sick or they mm. can't digest. If someone's got whole pieces of food coming out of, you know, their stool, they're not able to digest all these great raw kale salads we're going to have to have very simple foods so i think everyone's different and just remembering the basics i have another question for you just before we wrap up and that's um it's something that came up yesterday when i was having a a a question and answer and it's a question that often comes up to me when people adopt this way of life they lose 20 kilos 30 kilos 40 kilos 10 kilos 5 kilos but i have a it's 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 a lot of women actually a lot of men as well that say they've they're worried that they've lost too much weight. So a lady yesterday said she's down to 50 kilograms. She wants to put on more weight. And I never really know how to answer that because some of the information that I've read is that, you know, human beings all across the globe, hunter-gatherers were lean and sinewy and didn't actually have a lot of fat on them. That that was sort of our, our genetic makeup at that point in time. And I never want to give the wrong information. I always say, well, maybe you should speak to a, your, your health professional. And I've been eating this this way for seven years and I obviously lost a certain amount of weight but then it plateaued and does everybody have a different plateau or how do they uh, I'm confused on how to answer that question for people because they worry that they're going to keep losing more and more weight by eating a, a paleo approach yeah it's a that's a good problem to have in a way because that's the biggest challenge most people face it just can't even shift a couple of kilos but it I mean it's a reasonable question in someone who has such enormous shifts in weight I think that we all have a natural set point and I often go through a history which is all the way from childhood through puberty and what were you around those teens you know what what does your mum what's her body shape and size aunts grandparents you've got to get a bit of an idea of what your bone structure and what where you hold your weight Um, just naturally. And BMI, as you know, it's a basic body mass index, your height to your your weight on a scale, um, which I don't weigh anybody. We do body scans for everyone, which is your fat percentage, muscle percentage, water content, 
because they they change drastically, especially you'd see that with people adopting paleo. And then anyone who decides to eat well, they're going to go exercise and weightlift and, you know, their scales are not going to show a great deal of change quickly. But I don't think unless you're going under your BMI, which is then putting my normal GP hat on, what's happening here when someone's losing excess weight, if they're becoming low in BMI, they don't have enough structural protein or muscle mass, they can develop osteoporosis. And always with anybody going down natural medicine route is to be sure they have a GP that just checks all the standard screening. So any of us can develop cancers at any time that are early and can be treated or corrected. So screening, because weight loss, night sweats, that can happen in disease states and we don't want to miss those things if they are just losing more weight than would be expected. If someone's eating, you know, enough calories in the right quantity and, and on paleo having good fats, protein and vegetables, they're not going to keep deteriorating and starve. They won't get right under their BMI. So there's something else. So I would say to those people, it's really important that you have a full screen and, and get everything checked to make sure that you're well. And there's a huge emotional component to weight. So we load on big walls to protect us. And you see people who, you know, eat for comfort, but not only eat, they also accumulate weight with traumatic experiences or to protect themselves, especially in relationships. And those people who just suddenly change something about their life, they move jobs, they move partners, they, and the weight falls off. And honestly, they change not an ounce of what they eat, or they don't change their exercise. There's just a reconnection of the whole nervous system that just turns on the way the body metabolizes. And it's miraculous. It just surprises me all the time. So I think sometimes people letting go of that weight, it's very confronting mm -hmm. from the other perspective. Like I'm a whole new person. I get a whole different area of attention and I'm not so sure of this. And the people that I was around kind of keep me in that safe. So they're threatening. Mm. So yeah, that emotional part of medicine is really, really important. Mm, I love it. And to wrap up, I always ask my guests, what are their ingredients for a successful and happy and healthy and fulfilled recipe for life? And what are some of yours being a mother and being a uh, unique individual on this planet at the moment? <laughs> what are some of the things you could share as your ingredients, please? Sure. The, well, this week I seem to, to change them all the time, but actually probably this year I've really focused on not minimalism as such, but simplicity. So just knowing that we, we have excess of everything. So just having enough, and that means being enough as well. So making sure that you do have margins of time in your life that you do know you're going to be able to sleep well and have enough sleep. And so we often wake up thinking, oh, I didn't sleep enough already. So there's this lack feeling and this stress to get more. And financially, that's a huge thing is we want more. And even when we have excess, we still think we don't have enough and we want more. And then when it comes to food, you know, more is, is the worst that we could possibly do to our bodies. So it's just simple and the basic simple things of connection and people and love and moving your body and that connection to a deeper purpose and meaning and that's a lifelong journey. But, yeah, no day without yoga or Pilates is my rule. 
this year. So <laughs> that keeps me going. <laughs> oh, awesome. Rachel, thank you so much for your time today. It has been an absolute pleasure to take in all this information and I'm sure the, the listeners are going to love this podcast and you'll have some new fans, that's for sure. We love you. We thank you for your time and I look forward to chatting with you in the future. So thank you so much. Thank you, Pete. Appreciate it. Thanks. Take care. The information, views and opinions expressed in this podcast should not be treated as a substitute for nutritional, medical or other advice by a qualified professional. Guests in this podcast express their own opinions, experiences and conclusions. Nothing in this podcast should be used to diagnose, treat, cure or prevent any medical condition. Neither Pete Evans nor any sponsor endorse any views opinions or conclusions expressed or shared in this podcast.